0: You're tuned to WFHB. Volunteer-powered, listener-supported.
1: Community Radio for South Central Indiana.
2: Good afternoon. Reporting for WFHB, this is Benedict Jones.
3: And I'm Cade Young. This is the WFHB Local News for Tuesday, May 16th, 2023
2: later in the program we have disabulletin where we cover the top stories impacting the disability community across the country and around the world hosted by abe shapiro more in today's feature report
3: also coming up in the next half hour we have little bub's lil show a co-production between wfhb and lil bub's big fun but first your local headlines
2: On May 8th, at the Ellettsville Town Council meeting, Envision Ellettsville member Dan Rary announced that they will have a meeting on Tuesday, May 16th, at 6 p.m. Council President William Ellis commented that he was glad that the meeting would be held in the evening.
4: Uh, We're going to have a uh, community town forum uh, update uh, Tuesday, May 16th, at 6 p.m. here at the town hall, and I would like to invite everyone who's interested. to come to that meeting.
0: Thank you. I want to say thank you for having an evening meeting. That way,
5: well,
2: hopefully, we can have regular. Well, we turnout.
4: talked about that and thought yep. it was important because a lot of people can't come to the meetings during the yep. day. People at work, so it'll be at six o'clock here and uh, probably last a couple hours.
2: Next, Town Manager Mike Farmer introduced a presentation from ZipTility. Farmer said they have been working with ZipTility since 2018
6: are our vendor for digital mapping. Um, the process is uh, going really well, and uh, we are uh, compiling information that we'll always have from here on out, and it's it's uh, loaded with information, everything from pictures to descriptions of repairs, to installation of new services, uh, anything and everything uh, possible that you can put into this system. Uh, we've been diligently uh, working on uh, um, improving information we have. Um, We also use it for street inventory, and I think they're gonna talk about some of the other things we can uh, utilize in the future. We're talking about our um, infrastructure inventory, um, things like uh, tracking when we clean uh, uh, storm sewer grates, blah, blah, blah. So um, tonight, um, the kind of the lead in, for Ziptility to present, I just thought it would be interesting to uh, understand some of the things that go on in the background, but we have IDAM, actually an EPA mandated lead and copper rule that um, presents itself with uh, quite a bit of work, and uh, we are going to have them, it's a new project, and we're going to outsource them to uh, lead and complete um, our process, so with that said, I'll let you guys explain what's going on and
2: Ziptility COO Jesse Kurth gave a presentation on how the town has been using their software and what they can use it for in the future.
5: Good opportunity for you folks to get a little bit more familiar with the system the team has been doing a really great job of using. Um, It's been about five years now and it's the kind of thing that takes a lot of time to make progress on and they've been doing great. So Ziptility is, like Mike said, it's an operating platform for public works and you can do pretty much anything you need to with it to map where infrastructure is that you're responsible for maintaining and assigning and recording work against that infrastructure over time. And I think darn near every uh, department in the town has um, access to and uh, some manner of benefit from the Ziptility environment so far. just a testament to how well you've been utilizing the system. Some of those examples, like Mike mentioned, is cleaning schedule for sanitary sewers. You can see here is a map of all the sanitary sewers in town, and um, they're color-coded by when they should be cleaned, um, this year, the next, and the following. Uh, You've got another example here with waterline repairs. So this comes in particularly critical when you need to decide where your breaks are happening most frequently, where to make the investments in improving infrastructure to mitigate the risks of service disruption and those expensive repair jobs. You can see these little orange dots in some of these places are kind of some hot spots that the team might focus, uh, that the town might focus on improving rather than continuing to, to kind of duct tape and patch um, breaks as they happen. Um, the record keeping that takes place includes the ability to upload photos of that same work. It's rare that you end up with eyes on an asset that spends its whole life buried underground. And when you have that unfortunate incident, which you got to dig it up it's good to take a photograph of that so that whoever's responsible for it in the future to maintain that infrastructure knows what's sitting underground and where it is. Um, The team's been doing a great job of recording all of that stuff, and and Mike also mentioned you've even got your your city signs inventory in here. Um, Every type of sign all across town is in here. So a couple things you might think of doing next. I understand there's maybe some initiatives to put trails uh, all all throughout town and new places, walking, biking trails. This is a good place to say where you might rough those in related to other infrastructure and how they might intersect or impact one another. Um, so that's a that's just one thing that I've understood is, uh, is going on. Obviously, lots of new development here as a fantastic place to build and a, kind of an alternative to, to Bloomington. I understand there's a lot of growth going on. So working on a process to make sure that the developers who create these new neighborhoods can provide as built to the town and those can be merged into the existing infrastructure map so that as you become responsible for maintaining that infrastructure when it's developed and installed, you know where it is and you can continue to uh, maintain the same records on it as you do everything else. And then finally, uh, and perhaps most poignantly, like like Mike mentioned, um, the lead and copper rule revision uh, from the epa there's a deadline uh, in october of next year that requires a whole bunch of work leading up um, thankfully the indiana finance authority it, which is the state's uh, governing body responsible for distributing uh, federal funds to help with projects like this um, has recently announced that that funding is available and we will be uh, glad to help participate with the town to secure Uh, as much money as as possible to help cover uh, the expense of maintaining compliant with this new rule.
2: Farmer said that Ziptility has been a much cheaper option for the town compared to other geographic information systems, or GIS software. Ellis asked if the data from Ziptility would be able to be transferred to a GIS software if they ever need to switch to that in the future. Kurtz said that it is able to do that.
0: And
5: I agree with you about how much GIS costs. But let's say, you know, five ten years from now, we the town is large enough where we do want to invest in a GIS system. Can this port over into it? Can you still run this aspect of the utilities? And, Absolutely, yes. Okay. So um, uh, the system supports importing and exporting of data, similar to the way that we can take as-built drawings from the developers who who build new neighborhoods in town, um, we can export similarly formatted information to uh, any other system that might need to consume it. And even while you use ZipTility, you may have a need to do so. Maybe a uh, some other partnership with another organization that
2: uses a different system, it supports that. The Ellettsville Town Council will vote on the water rate increase ordinance at their next meeting on May 22nd.
3: In today's feature report, we have Disabulletin, where we cover the top stories impacting the disability community across the country and around the world, hosted by Abe Shapiro. In today's episode, Shapiro speaks with Bill DeSoe and Stacey Dim as part of a special feature of Lawyers, Schools, and Access.
1: Disabulletin in association with WFHB Radio, presents Lawyers, Schools, and Access, the history of special education in the United States. I'm Abe Shapiro. When we left off last time, we were discussing the formation of the Ark of the United States and the historic convention which created it in September of 1950, Today, we're joined by two representatives of the Arc of Washington to discuss the history of the organization and the moves it made leading up to the passage of House Bill 90, the first special education law for handicapped children in the United States. I'd like to introduce my first guest now, Stacey Dim, the executive director of the Arc of Washington State, who continues to lobby and advocate for individuals uh, with disabilities my second guest is Bill Dussault, a disability attorney who serves the historian to the Washington Arc. In 1984, he established the first disability law practice in the country, the former Dussault Law Group, which became the preeminent disability and other law practice in the country. He was instrumental in the story we cover. He was instrumental in passing the first special education law, Education for All, 1971, also known as House Bill 90. Which, for the first time in history, mandated all children have a right to public education in the United States. His areas of practice include personal injury settlement, planning and consultation, special needs and other trusts, state planning for states of all sizes, disability law, guardianship and trust, establishment administration, public benefits for all ages, probate, and our subjects for today special education. So a a big disabulletin welcome to our two guests. We are very excited to have you. Well, uh, first of all, I think it's important that we go back to the beginning of time, 1935. I understand that the ARC was originally called the CBL, or the Child's Benevolent League. Why was it founded initially? What was the goal of Washington State's uh, CBL? Because... I think we need to understand the context uh, leading up to its founding in 35.
4: New. knew. uh, They passed away now. But I knew uh, several of the parents uh, who were instrumental in uh, forming the CBL, uh, the Magnussons, uh, several others. And, And the real goal was to attempt to generate both awareness of and respect for individuals, their children who experienced disabilities and who were unable to access any kind of services uh, at at a publicly funded level. And even on a private level, uh, they were unable to access services in the community as as simple as being able to go to church. They were excluded, often institutionalized, and certainly marginalized. And those parents, strong-willed, often the mothers, not to say the fathers weren't involved, but the mothers were very strong women who were simply not willing to accept no or not willing to accept you can't for an answer. So they started an organization to provide a recognition for their family needs.
0: You know, it, it's interesting to me, the moms, as Bill mentioned, were just a critical element of this. And I I went to a dinner party in Seattle just not two months ago when uh, someone came up to me and said, whatever happened to the women's leagues? We'd really like to get that started again. Uh, We'd loved that. Uh, And Seattle was, you know, very instrumental. A lot of the, I'll say, um, upper middle class moms and upper class moms would get together because the pain of separating from your child, no matter what, was just so palpable Um, parents reached out to each other for support and that level of understanding. And at the same time, it's such a unique experience that you have to share it with someone else who's been through it to really feel um, like you can start to sort it out and understand. And that's really where this came from was just a desire for these parents who had been through such pain to separate from their children in order to get them access to the kind of education and acceptance that they needed. It was a sort of a unique club and and it changed it changed everything. It changed care going forward because they came together and united.
1: Prior to the CBL's founding, what was the uh, going rate in Washington State when it came to institutions? Because I did read in doing disability justice that there were some special education classes where students were enrolled. So did this apply to just one sect of disabled students, or what led to those institutions?
4: Well, Stacey, I'll let you jump in on this one, too. But um, in Washington State, services for individuals with disability historically were based on an institutional model. Um, Oftentimes, uh, the institutions were, for example, former tuberculosis hospitals or places out in the country where um, we could put those individuals sort of out of sight, out of mind. We didn't have to think about them. And they became uh, places where nepotism ruled and families served those organizations uh, and served as employees for those institutions through generations, and the generations became supportive of the institution because it was how the family made their living uh, out in the country in those institutions. So they uh, self-sustained one another, and that was the principal model of service in the state of Washington. There were a few uh, occasional places in public education, usually where there was a personal relationship between a teacher. I give you an example of the Baker family, a family that lived out in a very rural area outside of King County called Issaquah, which now happens to be the primary district for Microsoft families in the state. So quite a wealthy district now. But then they lived on, they moved out of Seattle in 1911 because Minnie Baker, the mother of Edward, was a school teacher. And she couldn't bring Edward, then six years old, to the Seattle School District, even to bring her him into her class. So Minnie and her husband simply packed up out of Seattle, moved out to this very rural area, and started their own school district, a two-room school in the country that became the Issaquah School District, and Minnie brought Edward to school every day. To my knowledge, in the 19-teens, that was the first special education program in the state of Washington, Edward Baker's class in Issaquah.
1: No kidding. I know the book has talked for a long time about different figures, Nellie Goodhue, and uh, some of the earlier... um, Did this predate them?
4: Yes. Oh, yeah. Minnie was was 30-plus years before Nellie Goodhue. Nellie essentially was the starter of the group home movement in the state. The Goodyear homes were known as our first uh, group homes in the state of Washington. Uh, But this was well before Nellie uh, simply struck off on her own. Edward today, uh, Edward had a bilateral hearing impairment and was also uh, intellectually impaired to what we would consider a mild to moderate degree today. Uh, Edward lived to 104 Uh, I took care of him for the last 35 years of his life.
1: So when you say group home movement, are you saying institutional movement or are you saying this was entirely different?
4: No, Nellie Good, you started the community group home movement where individuals in the community could live in a home-like setting. Typically, the original group home law in the state of Washington allowed for up to 20 people living in the home, which became somewhat like a community institutional ward. And and gradually over time, that 20 was reduced to a much lower figure. So we were really looking at a home-like environment. But the Goodyear homes were uh, the original group homes in the state of
1: Washington. Bearing in mind that there were several events that precipitated this shift, what were those events and why did it take until the 50s for things to change? Was it a gradual shift or was it sudden?
4: I, I think the shift largely came out of uh, returning veterans from the Second World War, quite frankly. Uh, w- what we saw were individuals coming back from war, principally men, obviously, uh, who were uh, amputees, who, who had, you know, I'll call them psychological injuries, what we might now call um, post-traumatic stress disorder, people who needed care. Uh, We weren't used to providing that care. During uh, the time period prior to really the late 50s, we saw that care provided only by families and only in family homes or in institutions. And now we have this whole new population of individuals who needed care and wanted that care in the community, their families wanted them to be home with them. So we start there. The other event that occurred at or about the same time was the application of the 14th Amendment to a suspect population. Uh, And what we really see is the development of the individual rights movement coming out of the rationale behind Brown versus Board of Education. 1955, 56, 57, and the iterations from the Supreme Court. As much as anything, the application of the 14th Amendment to a suspect population, and I use that term as it's considered by law, started to look at the way we treat people who are perceived as being different. So Brown versus Board of Education really created a baseline. There was one other factor. And that is the 1962 Kennedy Report. There was a President's Commission on the Handicap. Excuse me, I have trouble. uh, Language becomes such an issue for us. Uh, But that's what it was. And the, the findings of the Kennedy Commission Report on the Handicap established the blueprint for what was to happen to benefit this population, for the next 50 years. So if you go back to that Kennedy Commission report, and it's not that large, it's uh, only a couple hundred pages, but it is the foundation of the entire disability rights movement for the next 50 years. And that occurred in the early 60s.
3: Stay tuned next week for a new episode And look for the rest of the interview online at WFHB.org later this week.
2: Up next, we have Lil Bub's Lil Show, a co-production between WFHB and Lil Bub's Big Fun. We turn now to that segment.
7: Welcome to Lil Bub's Lil Show, a weekly co-production from WFHB and Lil Bub's Big Fund. We highlight adoptable animals with special needs in South Central Indiana and spotlight topics to promote human animal welfare. First, here's today's featured animal.
8: Gizmo is a sweet and rambunctious young cat with boundless energy. According to his current guardian, he loves people and would do very well in a home with room to run. Gizmo wants to play and because his current living situation with an older resident cat is not working out, he would likely do very well with a young friend to run around with or kids to play with. Gizmo has experienced feline idiopathic cystitis flare-ups for which he has had surgery to help him stay blockage-free going forward. Gizmo is a beautiful, one-eyed Siamese mix and a charmer. His current guardian has toys, beds, and prescription food to send home with him. If Gizmo sounds like your new buddy, please visit his listing at bloomington.in.gov animal-shelter.
7: If you're interested in adopting today's featured pet, you can learn more at our websites, goodjobbub.org and wfhb.org. You're listening to Lil' Bub's Lil' Show, a co-production of WFHB and Lil' Bub's Big Fund. We now turn to this week's featured topic.
8: While caring for an animal with visual impairment may seem challenging, simple accommodations can help them easily adapt. For example, keeping furniture in the same place and reducing clutter can help an animal maintain space recognition. If you redecorate or bring an animal to a new place, carefully introduce them to the area to show them any obstructions. Swimming pools or staircases can pose potential dangers, and the fall risks associated with these can be reduced with fences or baby gates. Ensure that others who may encounter the animal are aware of their visual status so that they can avoid startling the animal when approaching. If Letting the animal go outside, supervision, and using a leash can help them stay safe. And just because an animal can't see doesn't mean they don't want to play. Toys that make noise, such as those that squeak, chirp, rattle, or crinkle, can be appreciated. With the right details, pets with visual impairments can live safely and happily.
7: Thank you for tuning in to Lil Bub's Lil Show on WFHB. Produced in partnership with Lil Bub's Big Fund. For more info on today's featured animal and topic, find us online at goodjobbub.org and wfhb.org.
2: Been listening to the WFHB local news. Today's headlines were written by Noel Herhusky Schneider in partnership with CATS Community Access Television Services. Our feature was produced by Abe Shapiro.
3: Lil Bub's Lil Show is produced by Christine Brackenoff and Stacy Bradovsky Our theme music is provided by Mark Bingham and the Social Climbers. For WFHB, this is your engineer and executive producer, Cade Young.
2: And I'm Benedict Jones. Stay tuned for Spectrum, an exploration into science and technology. Coming up next on WFHB Community Radio.
3: You've been listening to the WFHB Local News on WFHB Community Radio.